When in reality, they need to ask, who's going to fix this toilet? Who's going to install this fridge? Who's going to renovate this home? When you start thinking as who's, for one, it allows you to scale. Two, it gets done better. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show, where today we have on Ryan Pineda, who we follow his journey from a professional baseball player to couch flipping to now the CEO of six different seven- to eight-figure businesses. But before we get into that, let me check in with my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Hey, Cody. Another solid weekend. Just coming off that last weekend, we we're up in Idaho and, and doing some awesome camping. But this weekend, we stayed in Austin. We were enjoying the 4th of July. I feel like every year on the 4th, we try to get on the water as much as we can. So we got to go out with our neighbors who we just met recently, and their grandparents have this sick house right on Lake Austin, which is this concrete dome with a huge like circular entrance and a circular skylight. It's really cool. I mean, this was something they built themselves. The family did back probably 30 years ago. It's really cool. We went out the next day to Lake Travis with a friend and I felt like there was a couple cool moments because we had a pontoon, a bass boat and a wave runner. And we were just kind of flying across the lake in like a V formation. So that was pretty cool. I mean, we also did a lot of, a lot of house sitting over the weekend for Leslie's brother and got to hang out with the, one of the coolest little French bulldogs in the land. Shout out to Pearl. How about you, Cody? Well, Justin, before we get into what I was doing, I know you just shared with me a couple of minutes ago before we hit record that you finally got the short-term rental license from the city of Austin. So what are the plans for that? Oh, yeah, it's, that's true. It's been a journey. Uh, I've been filing paperwork since January. It's been a lot of a lot of work. And some people might argue, hey, you should have just done it without the license and whatever happens, happens. Or, you know, ask for forgiveness instead of permission. But we were just trying to do it the right way. Plus, we still had some stuff we need to get done with the house. But the plan is to all these trips that we're always taking to rent out the house while we're traveling. So not rent out a room while we live here, but just rent out the whole house while we're traveling. We'll lock up the walk-in closets and the garage. So plan is to be able to go from our house to someone else's house in like 30 minutes. If that is successful, and then that opens up a lot of opportunities for us long-term as far as maybe doing a couple months abroad and that sort of thing. Awesome. Well, congratulations. We're definitely going to have to stay updated and keep the listeners updated for those who want to walk in your footsteps and try that same strategy. For me, I have had an absolutely crazy last week. So I actually flew out last Tuesday to Vegas. And the reason I was there wasn't just for fun, but I went to the Future Flipper Mastermind with today's guest, who was the one who was running it, Ryan Pineda. It was a bunch of fun. There's probably like 300 people there, all different levels of real estate. And they talked, it wasn't just flipping. There was Airbnbs and long-term rentals and wholesaling and I just got to meet, again, a lot of really cool people doing a lot of really cool things in real estate. And I got to meet Ryan in person just a few weeks after we recorded this episode, which was great. So as if Vegas wasn't enough, I get back on kind of late on Saturday. Lauren picked me up from the airport, which I was very gracious of. And then it was, you know, 4th of July weekend. So we had, we were partying on Sunday, partying on Monday. It was just, it's been an absolute whirlwind of a week. My energy levels are pretty low, although I'm bringing it today for you guys for this episode. But yeah, similar to you, Justin, we spent it on the lake, on our lake and on a friend's lake as well. And I feel like there's nothing better than watching fireworks on the lake. So for those of you who haven't got the chance to do that in any capacity, highly encourage you to do that on one of these 4th of Julys in the future. 
But Justin, that's enough about us and our personal lives. Let's get into today's awesome guest. So Ryan Pineda, who I just mentioned, just went to his future flipper mastermind. This guy has had quite the journey, like I teased out at the very beginning of the episode, from a professional baseball player to making over eight grand a month couch flipping to getting his first flip using a credit card. We wouldn't recommend this, but it's worked out fantastically for him. And then how he's went to just kind of replicate this process. He learned how to build businesses. He learned how to build systems. And now Ryan Pineda is the CEO of six different seven to eight figure companies. And just hearing him talk about how he systematizes things, how he thinks of new product and service ideas, how everything kind of just wraps under this one umbrella so beautifully. He's definitely a mastermind when it comes to business building. And it was so fun to be able to pick his brain. I've been following him on social media for a bit now, and he's always coming out with new content. He's super prolific. So being able to just ask him these one-on-one questions for about an hour here was a real treat. Cody, I agree. It seems like the theme of this episode and the theme for Ryan is the system building process. And I mean, I know you've done a lot of that and thinking about how to scale things. I mean, a lot of times when we think about business ideas or think about side hustles, it's a direct correlation of your time to the amount of money you make. And he has really mastered that. I've definitely been kicking myself a lot, you know, for years that I haven't done this myself to build some kind of system. Hopefully the Airbnb can be that. But Ryan has definitely figured that out and just keeps replicating it, focuses in on one thing, grows it, moves on to the next, and is just a machine at it. So we hope the listeners will get inspired to go out and create their own systems. And if you want to get more information on Ryan, or if you think this is the type of episode that one of your friends would love to hear about, you can grab that information over at thefyshow.com slash Pineda. That's thefyshow.com slash P-I-N-E-D-A. Take it away, Ryan. I learned a lot from my parents, both good and bad ways. Both of my parents were entrepreneurs. My mom was a realtor and my dad was a convenience store owner. And I just remember growing up them never like hurting for money. We always got what we wanted. In fact, I thought like I was a rich kid only to later find out that they were super in debt. And that was how we were funding our lifestyle. The thing I did learn from them was like, man, They didn't have a nine to five like most people. And they were able to go with me on all my baseball trips. They were able to come see all my games and just we were able to go on family vacation. I just remember all my friends not being able to do those things with their family. And so that kind of stuck with me growing up. But I think what shaped me was watching them lose it all. My dad lost his convenience store in 2008. And I grew up my entire life with them having that. I was 18 years old at the time. I had just left for college and I just remember vividly them saying, yeah, we don't really have that much money anymore. Like we can't do these things that we used to do. And so that was kind of eye opening as an 18 year old who just had left home for the first time. I remember my mom just kind of dealing with all of that, like not having any clients go from selling all these houses to not having anything and just dealing with lot of bad financial mistakes, not just with the economy, but with gambling, with bad investments, with just buying everything on debt and spending more than you make. It definitely influenced me growing up at that time and becoming an adult where I was like, I'm not doing any of that. I'm being super frugal. I'm never going to go in debt. That's kind of what I did for a long time just because I was pretty shocked from watching them. It actually seems like we're on the same timeline. Like I also went to college 2008 and I remember you got the Great Recession hits right in there. At the time, I didn't really know anything about the economy. So it 
wasn't as scary to me, but I'm just curious where you were. Did you feel like that was having any impact on what you thought you would do with your life? Like seeing that going into your college career, seeing the economy fall apart, does that change the way you viewed what you thought your life would eventually become? Growing into college, I never tried to be an entrepreneur or like thought about business. I was just strictly focused on playing baseball. That was it. And so in my mind, it was always, if I get good enough at baseball, I'm going to make millions of dollars doing that. And that was literally the only plan. And in fact, when I went to school, I didn't take it very seriously. Like I was pretty naturally gifted at school. And so I was able to like wing it and still do well. I remember when they were like, what's your major going to be? I was like, I don't know. Like, what do you guys think? And they're like, well, you're into business and stuff, right? And I'm like, yeah. And so they just put me in like general business. And so my first year in college, I got like a 3.8 or a 3.9 GPA. I was taking pretty high level classes. They were like, dang, dude, you're really smart. You crushed economics. And I was like, okay. They're like, you should get an economics degree. And I said, okay, I guess that I'll do that. (laughs) They're like, (laughs) economics is the highest paying business degree. I ended up getting that, but definitely I didn't even know what an economist did or what job it even led to because I just didn't care. I was just like, if that's what it is, then I'll do that. But yeah, baseball was always the focus. And honestly, I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur. Like that word 15 years ago wasn't cool like it is today. Like I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to own my own business. It was never like that. And I don't think many people really thought that way 15, 20 years ago. So fast forward and you end up getting drafted by the Oakland A's. And I think I saw one of your reels. You were spending like 1200 bucks a month. So you weren't kidding about being frugal. What did the income situation look like at that point? It's crazy, dude. People don't realize this about the minor leagues. But when I got drafted, I was a late round draft pick. And so I signed for $20,000. And what people don't understand is like your signing bonus is supposed to like carry you through your entire minor league career. (laughs) So (laughs) to get to the big leagues, most people will spend five years in the minor leagues if they make it. And so it's like, how do you live on 20 grand for the next five years? But along with that, even when you're playing, your income is so bad. When I was playing, it was 1200 bucks a month. And that was just the time you're playing. And you still have to pay your own rent. You still got to buy your own food. You got to pay your clubhouse dues. You got to pay for your gas. Ridiculous. And so It's not like I was mad about it or anything. It was just kind of the reality we all accepted going into the sport. And so it's like, yeah, that's the cost you pay to get to the big leagues. But now I look back at it as a 33-year-old 12 years later, and I'm like, this is ridiculous that these guys do this. I mean, these teams are billion-dollar teams. Every team is worth a billion dollars. They treat their minor leaguers so terribly that now I'm kind of an advocate calling them out. And I hope that, you know, as my influence grows... It's something that becomes more mainstream. And maybe one day I'll own a team. It will change that. But yeah, so I didn't make any money. And so I had to come up with other side hustles and things to get by, literally. I didn't have a choice but to be an entrepreneur because nobody would hire me nine to five when I was going to go leave for six months to play baseball. Yeah, I've read some of those articles about the insane life that a lot of the folks live when they're in that kind of phase where they're going through the minor leagues and then all of a sudden they get called up and it's just such a night and day change and some of the guilt that some of those people have felt like you're kind of leaving that survivor's guilt type thing. But during your journey, at what point did you realize, I got to stop chasing this dream and kind of what was that decision like? Yeah, so for me, I think it happened after my third season. I got released by the Oakland A's and so... I just remember, man, I was 24 years old. And for the first time in my life, like my future wasn't certain. 
I had always envisioned I'd play in the big leagues and I knew I was going to eat crap for a long time until I got there and I was fine with it. But, you know, the moment they say, hey, you're not good enough anymore. We don't really want you. And you're 24 years old and you're like, man, this is the dream I've worked my entire life for. And you just are done. Dude, it's tough, man. There haven't been many times in my life where I would say I was depressed or anything. But that was definitely one of the lowest points in my life. Just like so many things mentally. I'm like, well, what do I even do? I don't even know what to do with my life. And so I remember during this period, it was about a month where I was kind of like pouting and just like depressed. I started applying for jobs and stuff because I'm like, I guess I'm just going to work because I'm not going. I'm like, I'm done playing. And I remember I applied to like Allegiant Airlines and I applied to like a club here in Vegas and I literally didn't get any of the jobs. (laughs) At that point, I was like, man, trying to get a job sucks. Thankfully for me, that wasn't the end of my baseball career. After about a month in what I would call purgatory, I ended up getting a call from another team and they were like, hey, we want you to play for us. You know, we know it's not affiliated baseball is what we would call it with one of the big league teams, but it's still professional. We're going to pay you what's called independent baseball. And people all the time get signed out of independent baseball back into affiliated baseball. And I said, all right, I'm going to go play one season. So I go play one season with these guys, have the best time of my life. From there, I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to keep playing as long as I can because you just never know. That's what I did. You know, I ended up playing five more seasons in independent baseball. So I had a blast doing it, but I would say probably around the time I was 25, I kind of felt like the big leagues were so far away at that point. I was, and especially when you're an athlete, as you get older, your chances get less and less because, you know, you have a lifespan as an athlete. It's not like business owners and real estate investors where we can do this stuff forever. I just knew every year that went by was going by. It was that year when I was 25 that I also started flipping houses for the first time. And I understood like, wow. This is the first time in my life, like, I feel like I have a career that I can actually make money and feel, I guess, proud of doing. So that first house flip happens at 25. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think you did some furniture flipping before that. And I think I read or saw somewhere that you were doing like 8K a month with like couches or just explain that whole thing and like how that came to be. Yeah. So before I got into house flipping, this was probably two and a half years before I'm pursuing my dream. I'm playing baseball. I'm not making any money doing it. I also get married. Very smart to do, guys, when you're super young. You're not making any money. Your wife's in college, not making any money. And you're like, let's get married and, you know, figure this out. And so (laughs) we do that and we don't have any money. So I end up getting a little apartment for us and I furnish it with Craigslist furniture. And I just remember sitting there thinking, man, I got this all at such a good deal. I was always great at finding deals. And I just said, you know what? I bet you I could sell some of this furniture for a profit. And I had flipped things when I was young. I'd flip Pokemon cards. I had flipped cell phones. Like flipping was something I was just always good at. I said, I'm going to test it out. So I went and bought another couch, threw it back up on Craigslist, made a couple hundred bucks. And I was like, dude, imagine I could find one deal a day, make 200 bucks. That's 6,000 a month. And in my mind, it instantly clicked. I was like, that's a lot of money. That's more than an entire year of playing minor league baseball. So I just, I said, I'm doing it. So I bought a truck on Craigslist, $1,500 for the truck, like 1998. And I just start buying furniture everywhere. I'm just like, I'm going to do this. And I get a storage unit and all of a sudden, like I'm on to something, you know, I make thousand bucks 
you know, I make 2000 bucks, then 4000 bucks. And I'm like, this is crazy that it's so easy to make money doing this because I was trying to get a job, but Allegiant Airlines, the crappiest airline in the world for <laughs> 4000 a month, you know, and I could do this way easier than that. It takes me two hours a day. And so eventually I started figuring it out and I realized that couches were like kind of my niche. And sure enough, I scaled that thing to make an on average like eight grand a month. And I had months where I made a lot more. I was like, dude, I cannot believe I can make six figures doing this. Now, granted, I wasn't full time at it because I was still playing baseball. But I was like, to go make 40 grand this off season and then be able to go play baseball. I'm chilling, dude. I'm like rich. And so... <laughs> Yeah, I did that for a few years. But after a few years of doing it, you also realize like, okay, what's next? And I still find myself doing that today, even after conquering new things. I'm like, all right, that was cool. Like, I'm glad we did it. I still am grateful that I do this, especially like even flipping houses today. You know, I'm grateful that I flip houses, but like, what's next? I'm not going to flip houses my entire life. Like, this is boring at this point. Well, you graduated from flipping couches to flipping houses. And when you start flipping houses, that's obviously a little more skin in the game. That's a scarier situation. It's a little harder to do your due diligence on a house than it is a couch. You know, like there's <laughs> only so much could be wrong with a couch. So when right. you're going into that first flip, like, did you just find something and buy it on like, a, I've just got to get started? Or did you take a slow, methodical approach to it? At that point, I forgot to mention this in the story. I became a realtor as well when I was 21. So I guess by the time I finally made the commitment to flip houses. I'd already been in real estate for like four years. Now, granted, I was a terrible realtor. I did not make much money doing that either. Like, I sold a few houses, but I always had this like thing in my head. I said, dude, I could find good deals. If somebody would just give me money, I bet you I could crush it flipping houses. But problem was I didn't know anyone with money. You know, my parents were still broke. I didn't know any family members that would give me money. I didn't have any friends. I was young that had money. And so I just was stuck. And then I remember on my one year anniversary, I was praying and I said, God, what do you want me to do with my life? It's not flipping couches. It's looking like it's not baseball. I suck as a realtor. I can't even get a job at Allegiant. Like, what am I supposed to do? And I remember him revealing to me that it was flipping houses. And yeah, I won't go in depth on the whole story, but long story short, it led me down this path to finding bigger pockets and podcasts and books. And so I started reading these books and I see, I learned about these hard money loans and wholesaling and these private money loans. And I'm like, wow, this is crazy. Like, all I got to do is find a good deal and somebody will fund this for me. Like, I don't need to go get a 30 year FHA loan or a conventional loan. They don't care how much money I make. All they care about is the deal. I've been saying that forever. <laughs> if somebody would just give me money, I could find deals. And so that moment, it was like an epiphany for me. And I've had only a couple of those moments in my life where it just all clicked. And I'm like, wow, it all makes sense. And so, you know, I started hunting immediately because I'm like, I know a deal when I see one and now I have the money to back me. And I would say within the first maybe two months of looking, I found one. That first house, you know, at the time I'd saved up $10,000. We'd went through our savings from baseball and stuff and everything else. And I said, I'm just going to buy this thing and see where it takes us. And so I ended up buying that thing with 10 grand saved up. I ended up taking $50,000 of credit cards to basically cover the rest of the down payment. And, you know, in the end, thankfully it all worked out. We made 25 grand on that deal and the rest is history. If you could go back in time and take out $50,000 in credit card debt again, what'd you do it, Ryan? 
We'll be right back after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's sponsor is one I use on a daily basis at my company, Gold City Ventures. That is the sound of a sale in your Shopify store. But did you know that Shopify now also powers in-person selling? Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store or small business. Accept payments, manage inventory, they have everything. Shopify brings together your in-person and online sales business into one source of truth, one dashboard, everything in one place. You know exactly what's going on. And now they have all these customization options. They have plug and play tools that you can integrate with Instagram or TikTok or wherever. You can take your payments by phone or by tablet. Shopify makes it easy. Plus, if you have any questions, their support team is there to help you. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this audience and Shopify POS just breaks down that barrier to accepting payments with your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash show, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash show to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash show. Now back to the show. Of course. Look where it got me. But here's what I will say. I did it that way because I didn't know any better. To me, that was like, I need 50 grand so I can do it this way. Like, let's go apply for credit cards. Let's go max them out and let's do it as my wife and my credit. Today, I don't tell my students to do that because there are better ways, right? You can go get private money lenders and like finding them is much easier today than it was then. There are hard money lenders that'll fund your whole deal if you look hard enough. There's corporate credit, right? Like we refer a lot of our students to go get corporate credit when they start up their LLC and they're able to get credit that way. But there's a lot of students who do max out their credit cards just like what I did. And look, to me, there's nothing wrong with it because debt is debt. You know, I don't care if you have a credit card debt. I don't care if you have a HELOC on your house, a mortgage. I don't care if somebody gives you a personal loan. To me, at the end of the day, every company in the world takes on debt to grow. That's why they issue stocks, why they go public, why they take out all these different loans, because you cannot grow a company just on your cash alone saved up. And so, you know, when I hear people maybe look down upon credit cards or aka Dave Ramsey, (laughs) I'm just like, it's so stupid, dude. There'd be nothing innovative in the world if everybody saved up money to try and do what they do. It's so stupid. And when you're young, you have nothing to lose. You know, I remember thinking back when I was 25, I said, you know what? What's the worst case that could happen, right? This deal goes sideways and it just doesn't work out. What happens next? Well, I either lose money or break even and, you know, I just roll that money into a new deal. Like I learn a lot and I try a new deal. The worst case scenario, which is super unlikely, is like I go bankrupt (laughs) at 25. And then guess what? When I'm 27, it's all gone. And I got a fresh start. Who cares, right? That's the worst case scenario. The best case scenario, which I didn't even plan for, was it works out and I end up where I'm at today. But the likely scenario was I was going to do okay and it would be a great way to go. And that's pretty much how I looked at it. I said, my risk of failure is pretty low. And even if it does hit, the actual failure itself is so small compared to it. And I can recover. I'm 25. But, you know, I also weighted against the risk of doing nothing. When I looked at it, I said, what's the risk of not doing this? I'm going to stay in the same hamster wheel forever if I don't do this. And the thought of doing that, of just staying in the hamster wheel, freaking not taking a chance on myself, not believing in myself was so excruciating that I'm just like, there's no way I can do nothing. And so I even do that today. I mean, if you guys follow me, 
I'm always trying something new, right? Whether it's dyeing my hair green, whether it's starting an NFT project, whether it's jumping into a whole new industry, it's like, you know what? I'm going to try. And if I fail, I fail. Like it is what it is. I don't really care, you know, because I can look at the worst case and say, hey, you know what? I can recover. But the best case is it really does well. And it takes us to this whole new level of new things. Another question, kind of looking back on how you would do it or how you'd recommend people do it. You started out as a realtor and you mentioned that that wasn't that successful for you, but it seems like for flipping houses, that's a huge end. Like you get to know the neighborhoods, you get to see all the listings, like all that kind of stuff. You're getting kind of first access. Would you recommend people who are getting into flipping houses to go down that realtor license avenue? Well, it depends, right? I mean, I had my license, but I wouldn't say that taught me the neighborhoods or anything because... (laughs) I wasn't showing homes. I didn't have clients. Like, and I think that's a lot of people too. They get their license, but it's like, they're not doing anything, right? So they're not learning. So that was kind of the case for me. It was nice having MLS access and like teaching myself how to comp properties and those things, but you don't need a license to get all those things, right? There's lots of ways you can go about it. Ironically, the place I learned all the areas of Vegas was couch flipping because I was driving around town literally hours every day picking up and delivering couches. And so I got to see everything. And what was funny was that most of the areas I was slipping couches in were rougher areas because those are the people who were buying couches off Craigslist. Those are the people who were selling them. The rich people, they weren't buying houses or couches on Craigslist. They weren't (laughs) even selling their couches on Craigslist. They're like, they just probably give them away or something. So I got really familiar with the ghetto And it was great because when I went to flip houses, the majority of the houses I flipped early on were in bad areas. And it made me just real. I'm like, dude, I walk these areas. I've picked up couches. I've met families in these. Like, it's not bad. And I think for me, I grew up middle class. And so I never was exposed to those areas. And so like, it just changed my mindset and made me comfortable doing those deals when other people weren't. And so that was kind of like the niche I had early on. How did you go about, especially early on, vetting contractors, knowing people were doing the right work? Because I read or watched or learned somewhere that you've never like put it in a toilet or drywall. Like You just are hands off with this stuff. You're just hiring people, trusting them. I know you probably have a vetting process, but that seems like one of the biggest barriers to why people don't want to get into real estate investing. Flipping is you know, they don't know how to do this stuff, but they don't trust other people enough to do it for them. Once again, I think God kind of worked everything in my favor for why I ended up the way I've ended up and the beliefs I have. So one of the things was when I first started flipping, I was not literally there. I was playing baseball. And so I remember buying my first like two houses. I kind of saw them and walked them and tried to figure it out. But, you know, the rest of them I bought when I was out playing. And so I had to learn to not only like look at a property from afar, but to trust whoever walked it is giving me good information about the repairs and the area and all this stuff and buy it based on never seeing the house. And so like I did that from the beginning and it was natural for me as time went on and as my career evolved to be like, yeah, you know, it's not a big deal. Like I buy houses without seeing them all the time. I don't need to go fix it myself. And I just got used to it. And as my company scaled, it made me realize I need to hire more people to help me. You know, I don't have to be the one to do it, nor can I if I want to keep playing baseball. And it's kind of been that same approach today as I've opened new businesses and gotten on social and stuff. It's like, man, I literally have such limited time that in order to accomplish everything I want to accomplish, I need to 
hire a lot of people because I just don't have enough time. So I think I was just lucky in that I was forced into it. Other people who start, maybe they've got nothing else going on. And so they're like, oh, well, I can go save a dollar here by doing it myself. I can go paint myself. I can go do this. And so they do it, right? But it creates bad habits because at scale, obviously that doesn't work. And so for me, in anything I do, whether it's construction, whether it's content creation, whether it's building a new business, I always think with the end in mind at scale. And I'm like, is this product or is this business I'm building fully reliant on me? And if it is, we're in trouble because it means I can't do anything else. Like (laughs) this business dies if I die. Or if I want to go do something else, I want to go play golf, can't do it because the business dies. So I think I'm just grateful that I learned that early on. But I would say to people who are fearful about construction, it's not that hard. It's a really good book everyone needs to read. It's called Who Not How. And essentially the premise is most people, they want to learn how to do something. How do I fix a toilet? How do I install a fridge? I don't know, whatever. When in reality, they need to ask, who's going to fix this toilet? Who's going to install this fridge? Who's going to renovate this home? When you start thinking as who's, for one, it allows you to scale. Two, it gets done better because you're definitely not the expert at it if you don't even know how to do it, right? (laughs) And three, you help other people, right? You're giving them jobs. You're adding value. Like, it's great. And so every time I do something, it's always who. I don't like... (laughs) I personally don't want to learn many new skills at this point. Like I've got enough skills. Like I would rather just hire the who's to do all these things I can't do. And so that kind of tackles getting the work actually done. But and you've obviously kind of shown that you're comfortable taking some risk. But when you're looking at these properties, a lot of times you're not even there. It sounds like how about coming together like that project plan, like getting an estimate of about what it's going to cost, like if it's a good deal or not, just kind of qualifying the deal. What's your process like there? Yeah. So let me be clear. You know, the position I'm in today is very different than when I started, right? So when I was first, let me guess, 50 flips, I managed them all myself, right? Like I met the contractor there. I walked through the house with him. We figured out what we wanted to do, right? And that took through trial and error, right? Because when you first start flipping, you're like, everything needs to get renovated. We have to change it all because you don't know. And you watch HGTV and then you soon realize like, no, not everything needs to get renovated. Like that's not necessary. So, you know, it took trial and error, right? Like overspending, then underspending, you know, and the property doesn't get what you want. Firing a contractor and having a guy screw you and run off with money. That stuff all happens. It's happened on my watch too many times. And you just learn as each deal goes on. The only way to learn is by doing deals, right? Like you could read my book, you could go read anyone's book and be like, oh, I get it. I get it. But until you actually do it, you'll start to see like, oh, okay, like I won't do that again. Or that worked good last time. Like, let's just keep doing that and see how it goes. And so it comes with trial and error. A very simple method though, that like I teach people in our book is in our course and stuff is use price per square foot, you know? So for us, since prices are going up in many things, you'll, you'll have to adjust this based on your market and everything else. But like the simple of the matter is we look at Okay, a full remodel here in Las Vegas at this point. When I say a full remodel, I'm not talking about like putting new plumbing and all that stuff. And I'm just talking about like a full cosmetic remodel where we're going to put a new kitchen. We're going to put flooring and bathroom and everything else. But we're not like gutting the entire home, right? Because our houses are pretty new. They don't need to be fully gutted. 
And for us, when we do that, we know we're going to probably spend like $30 a square foot. So if a house is 1,500 square feet, we're probably going to spend $45,000, give or take, to get that thing fully renovated. But sometimes you need to replace an AC. Sometimes you need to fix a pool. So you can just add those on as extra items. We're like, okay, we know an AC might be six grand. Add that on top of it. (laughs) Then we also have other formulas for less extensive rehabs, right? We might say, you know what? This isn't a full remodel. It's a pretty like light remodel. And maybe we're only going to spend $20 a square foot because we can salvage the cabinets, right? And maybe we'll just paint them instead of brand new ones. Maybe the flooring's good, right? So there's a lot of ways that we do it. But my advice, if somebody's brand new and you have no idea what things should cost, first read books and like join coaching, whatever, and just like learn how to like ballpark it the way I'm telling you. But second is when you get to the actual property, have three contractors walk it and say, hey, give me your bid and tell me what exactly you would do with this property. And so now you're going to get a bunch of bids, but you're also going to get three different perspectives of how to fix this property up. And they'll say, hey, you know, do this. Hey, do that. And you're going to get some ideas like, oh, I didn't think of that. That's a good idea, right? And so you'll have these perspectives. You'll have these different bids and you'll be able to see like who's near what is this guy charging for cabinets versus this guy? What's this guy charging for counters versus this guy, right? And so you can start to get an idea of what things cost. Lastly, I would say with that method, one thing we always teach our students is to copy the comps, okay? So what I mean by that is if I'm trying to sell a house for... $500,000, right? That's what I think it's worth fixed up. I want to just look at what does that $500,000 house look like? What color cabinets does it have? What kind of flooring does it have? You know, how good are its finishes? And pretty much that's all I have to do. Just literally copy the comps. And if I do that, I should hit the $500,000. And now I can back it out and say, okay, you know, in order to copy that house, I need to spend $50,000. So now I'm at $450,000. You know, I also got to make my profit I want to make. You're like, all right, I need to make, I want to make 50K on this house. All right, well, now I'm at 400. And then you have to back out all of your other costs, the realtor fees, the closing costs, the loan costs, everything else. And you might say, you know what? For me to make 50 grand on this house, I need to buy it for 370. And that's pretty much how you back it out and create your spread. So as you mentioned before, Ryan, you're not one to find one thing, just do that thing. You're always looking at different projects, different opportunities. At what point in this whole flipping journey do you start to actually create content and teach other people all this stuff that you're learning through trial and error? So, you know, I was talking earlier about epiphanies that I've had in my career. And one of the big ones was during the pandemic when everybody was freaking out and they're saying, hey, housing market's going to crash, like all this is going to happen and it's going to be terrible. I'm like, crap, (laughs) I own a lot of houses right now. I got like 40 flips going on. If it all crashes, I'm going bankrupt tomorrow, man. Like, what are we going to do? And I just sat there thinking like, okay, like let's objectively look at where the world's at today and what we think is going to happen. And I think the pandemic for me anyways was a blessing. Obviously, I did well financially and building businesses and stuff. But it was also a blessing in that it made me sit down for the first time like, and really evaluate what was happening, right? Because we get so caught up on the day-to-day that we just don't ever get time to think and reevaluate. And so I just remember sitting there like, okay, where's the world going? Okay. Do I really think the market is going to crash like everyone else? And so to answer the first question of, is the market going to crash? I said, I don't think so. And I had various reasons why I thought that. But 
I continued to buy homes while everybody else didn't. And I got way better deals because everyone was scared. But the second thing I came to the conclusion one was, I was like, hey, I think this content thing is going to be enormous during the pandemic because everybody's locked up at home. They can't do anything. And everybody is like looking for a job because <laughs> they're all getting laid off. They're like, I, I'm about ready to switch a career. In my mind, I'm like, where are they going to go to learn and like do this stuff? It's social media. And so I started my YouTube channel then in 2020 and I started a TikTok and started getting more active on Instagram. And sure enough, the hypothesis was right. And it ended up being um, a very big move. But I would have never predicted it would have been as successful as it has been. I thought it was going to be a very slow journey to build it because I've seen other people try to build social media accounts and podcasts. And I mean, you guys know it's tough. It just happened way faster than I thought. I think I was a byproduct of timing. People don't talk about timing enough when it comes to starting a business or investing, but timing is very important. Some of it we can't control, right? Like it sucks. I'm getting ready to release my NFT project and the crypto market's tanking, right? So it's like the timing on this is pretty terrible to be launching a crypto project, but I don't let like the market and everything else you know, I'm not going to blame that, right? I'm going to look at the positives from this. And so for me, you know, look at the positives. It's same thing with the pandemic, right? Everyone's focused on all the negatives. I said, what's the positive of this? Well, if everyone's at home, what should you give them? And it's like content. It seems obvious now, but in hindsight, it wasn't. When I look at the NFT landscape now, I say, okay, pretty much all the people who shouldn't have been there are out because they're just like over this now. They're just moving on with their lives. But there's hardcore people that are now like left. And also, too, I'm kind of grateful because most projects are way down compared to where they were at their peaks, you know, five, six months ago. And it's because Ethereum went down. It's because the market, you know, interest rates, all these things, right? So for me, getting to launch a project with a fresh slate where we're at the bottom, you know, and theoretically we should have nowhere to go but up, I actually like that better because now it's like, man, I would hate to have a project where everyone's pissed because everything is so fun. And it couldn't, it wasn't even my fault. You know, it could be the same exact project, but you're in the bad timing of it. So I choose to look on the bright side of all these things. A lot of times we like to pick people's brains on, you know, mindset, what a day in the life looks like. And you mentioned how the pandemic forced you to kind of take a pause that you normally probably didn't afford yourself. A lot of people don't do. And with somebody being as busy as you are, is that something you've kind of incorporated into your daily, weekly life where you just say, hey, I want to block out some time to where I'm, I'm not trying to get something done. I'm just going to kind of sit back and reflect on what I could be doing. Yeah, I do it a lot, way more than people anticipate. They think I'm super busy, which I am super busy on the days I'm at work. Like I'm meeting after meeting, you know, everything is very much focused. But a lot of my busyness is doing nothing. And so what I mean by that is weekends. I don't work. I don't come to the office, nothing, right? I'm just chilling, kind of hanging out with my family, enjoying life. But during that time, I get a lot of alone time to just do nothing. And instead of like just watching TV and like kind of spacing out, I sit there and think because I actually just enjoy thinking and like my, I enjoy kind of processing what's happening and trying to find solutions to problems. And maybe it's the general world. Maybe it's my own life personally. Maybe it's my businesses, whatever, right? I like there's always problems. So I do that a lot on the weekends, but also too, like I do it on Fridays. You know, I don't work on Fridays anymore. I just go golf every Friday and 
you know, I get to enjoy life and like think through things on the golf course. It's, it's a lot of fun. Also in the mornings, you know, I have a really long morning routine and you know, I wake up at 530 and I spend four and a half hours alone every day before I get to the office at 10. So it's like, what do you do with four and a half hours <laughs> by yourself? But I love it. You know, I, I wake up, I, I do my quiet time, you know, I'll read my Bible, I'll journal, I'll write my goals, I'll write things I'm grateful for. I created a planner from scratch. Anyone can get it for free at wealthyway.com, by the way. And I then go to the gym, work out, just kind of do my own thing, you know, maybe listen to a podcast or something. Then I go to the golf course in the morning because I'm really passionate about it. And I go practice for like an hour, hour and a half, just go get some swings in. And after all of that, then I finally come to the office and go talk to people. And that's what gives me energy to like literally talk nonstop because that's like my job at this point is literally just come to the office, meeting, it's podcasts, it's content, it's whatever. So I have to talk all the time. So it's nice not having to talk the rest of my time. Obviously, you're already talking about how busy you are, but we're even underplaying that a bit. And even in your Instagram bio, you're the CEO of six, seven, eight figure companies. And I actually saw, I couldn't find it. I was looking today again, a really interesting reel where you kind of broke down like all of those different income streams, what they look like. I was wondering if you could do the same for our audience, just like, you know, not to share exact numbers, but maybe just like a pie chart of where you spend your time and where you're making money with all of these different businesses you have going on. Man, sometimes I forget. <laughs> I have to like look on my website to see what I own these days. I would say if you're looking at it from, let's talk about time and let's talk about like actual income, right? So I would say the biggest income streams would be obviously flipping houses. That's with Home Run Offer. Education with Future Flipper. My e-commerce company with Lunar Ecom. Those are definitely the three biggest ones. At Panetta Capital, we're buying apartments all across the country and we own 460. The goal is to get to 1,000 this year. Um, that one actually doesn't make me money today. I mean, it's very small compared to it. Like you, you make an acquisition fee when you buy a property, but you know, overall, the cash flow is very minuscule compared to active income streams. But you know, that makes a lot of money in the long run. Five years from now, if and when we exit these apartments, they're going to be worth a lot more and we'll make millions doing that. So that one is a big stream. It's just like one you have to wait for. My CPA firm, TrueBooks, it's fine. I look at the CPA firm as like kind of the stepchild. Like it's great. It's a great business for most people, but it's so like much less than the rest of them. But it's so necessary for all of them. <laughs> like it's the most necessary, but it personally doesn't make me that much money. But I love having it because now I own a CPA company. It just makes everything so much more cohesive and all my students and clients and stuff need it. And so it just makes sense. We started a new education company called Wealthy Agent for Realtors. So that one's just now getting going. So that one should be a seven-figure company here soon. My NFT project I've been talking about, Tykes, that will be a seven-figure company once we mint and do what we're going to do there. I've got an Airbnb business, got my own long-term rental portfolio that I own 100%. There's a lot of stuff <laughs> yeah. going on. you know. And then my social media, <laughs> my social media itself is like, you know, its own business in itself. So yeah, I would say the three are the biggest, but as far as like how I spend my time, it's interesting because up until recently, the majority of my time was spent filming content. I would spend about 20 hours a week making videos, filming podcasts and those things. That is work, right? Because it gets 
traffic to the businesses. And so like that was the best use of my time. The rest of my time would be spent in meetings and different things, right? But now I've actually gotten rid of that. I'm actually not doing really many like videos anymore, like direct, like, okay, I'm going to film three videos this week or this today, whatever, right? I'm just doing a ton of vlogging now, kind of Gary V style. And those will probably come out here in the next couple of weeks. But that's just easier for me because now it allows me to go actually work more and impact the businesses. And then I still get my content. And in fact, I think it's way more interesting to everyone because if people knew really what I did every day, you'd be like, what the, how the heck did you even do that? Because I even think that I've watched the vlogs already. We were just planning. We were like, what should we include in this vlog? And they're like, there was so much. I don't know how we're going to fit it all in. And I'm like, I don't even remember doing it. It's just like all a blur to me at this point. Like that was last week. I'm already focused on what I got to do this week. So I I think people are going to really enjoy it. But each individual company, I would say like I'm not involved really in any of them like at a high capacity. I would say most of my time is always spent on a big project that hasn't launched. Hmm. That makes sense. So it's like, okay, right now I'm working on Tykes. Okay. That's happens to be what's taking up the majority of my time. It hasn't launched. We're working on it. I've been working on that for like the last three, four months. Before that, I was working on the wealthy way, which could also be a huge company, but I don't charge anything for it. I just enjoy like people having that resource. And, you know, it's just something I'm really passionate about, but I was working on that for like four months, you know, get that launched. And then, you know, once we launched Tykes, I've already got another project lined up that I'll be working on right after that. So I'd say the majority of my time is spent on long-term projects and then problem solving within the company. So my COOs will tell me kind of like what's up to date and what we're doing and, you know, some of the issues we're having. And so for me, I get to look at those problems from a, I guess, big picture point of view, whereas they're in the day-to-day. And so maybe they can't see the solution like I could. And I'll be like, you know, just start asking questions. Hey, like, why aren't we doing this with this customer? Hey, why don't we get this software? Why don't we change the process to this way? I think that really pushes all the companies forward because my mind is kind of relaxed at it. I can look at it from like an unbiased, more consultant point of view versus like a guy who's maybe biased and like attached to maybe how we do things. Well, you obviously have so many things going on now. I'm kind of curious. Obviously, you have things like the NFT project coming out near term, but let's say it's 2030. Ryan Pineda is 40 years old. What does life look like? What do you hope life looks like? It kind of goes along with that when is enough enough type question. That is a good question, man. It's funny because people are always like, man, do you have like a goal when enough is enough? And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, and typically they're relating to like money or businesses. And I'm like, man, I'll never have enough money. Money's never been the goal. Like I have enough money as of today, as far as like all the things I ever thought that I'd want to buy in my life, like I can own them now. And I really pursue all these different things for the passion of like, I love creating. I love business. I love the competition of getting better every day, whatever it is I'm doing, whether it's my business, my health, being a better husband, a better dad, becoming a better golfer. Like all these things are super important to me. And so typically now that I've started to develop a trend in my life, it's like I kind of master one thing, get really good at it, kind of figure out how to delegate it off so I don't have to do it anymore. And then I move on to the next thing. Right. And so it was like for a long time, man, how do we flip houses? All right, great. We got that locked in. Let's do that. 
man, how do we run multiple businesses at once? All right, we've got a process for that. Great. Hey, how do I become a content creator? All right, we're doing that. Great. All right, how do I get in the crypto space and like really execute well? All right, we haven't proved that yet, right? We're we're still launching that and we're going to go through a bunch of headaches and things that will happen, guaranteed. But I'm pretty confident that we'll figure it out. So if you ask me like 2030, man, it's eight years from now. I have no idea, dude. Like, (laughs) I have no idea. I couldn't even tell you. Like, I don't think that far ahead because there's no numerical goal that like, oh, that's enough. Like, he's a billionaire. Like, I I just don't care. So maybe when I'm like a professional golfer, maybe that'll be enough once I'm on the PGA. I was about to say, they're they're opening up more room for you now on the PGA Tour. People people are dropping out. (laughs) Yep. So I think I have a shot. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, we could have gone so many different ways with today's podcast episode. You just have so many cool things going on. But, you know, where do you want our audience to go to find you online? I mean, we just mentioned you have six companies that are seven figure plus companies. Um, Where (laughs) do you want to direct our audience? Where do you want people to get in touch and learn more about all the awesome stuff you have? Yeah, I would say go to uh, RyanPineda.com. You can see all my socials, all my companies, everything we got planned going on over there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ryan, for coming on the show. Give us some time. Like you said, you're a busy person. And we, hopefully we don't infringe on any of your alone time. You got those four and a half hours in the morning to keep things straight. But thank you for coming on the show and giving the audience a little bit of knowledge and also the hookup with some of those freebies you mentioned. Yeah, appreciate you guys for having me. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to another episode of The Fi Show. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us, the best way to do that is to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, share this with a friend, and also don't forget, you can find 200 plus episodes and all the information you'd ever want to have about these episodes over at thefyshow.com. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button because that way every Wednesday you can have our latest episode delivered straight to your phone. Until next time. Hey, real quick, before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available, the very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million, available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.